Every day, a small group of people are making quantum leaps forward, building wealth faster than most dream possible, almost like they have the Midas touch. On Breakaway Wealth, we'll unlock the secrets to breaking out of the herd, thinking big and building wealth on our own terms. And now let's join our host, the creator of Create Tailwind, and your abundance advocate, Jim Oliver. Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm your host, Jim Oliver, and with me today, my co-host, Nick Costco. Welcome, Nick. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back on and dive into this uh, the sixth uh, section of the case for IBC. The sixth session and almost wrapping it up, right? Yeah, yeah. So those of you that are just joining us, uh, we have been spending this seven-part series here of diving into Nelson's uh, last published work um, called The Case for IBC. If you want to get a, a copy of it, just go to infinitebanking.org, go to the store, get a copy. It's a quick read, uh, a little over 100 pages, and uh, it's a great great compilation of Nelson, uh, Bob, Dr. Bob Murphy, and Carlos Laura sharing their wisdom on uh, why uh, infinite banking can be for you. Absolutely. So let's just jump in. So this chapter is lessons from history. And, you know, in this chapter, they kind of give you an overview of um, some subjects that are in um, the book, uh, How Privatized Banking Really Works. That's right. And, and if you want a, a bigger or better or more detailed explanation, I would go to that book. But I also would encourage everyone to read Human Action by Mises in 1949, because he talks about saving inside of insurance and why that's important and what it does um, from an economic standpoint. Yeah. And if you're really looking to go down the, the Austrian uh, economic rabbit hole, uh, go to Mises.org. It, it's a great resource for a, a lot of uh, a gr great reading. Absolutely. So, you know, when they're talking about the gold standard, Nick, what's the what's the easiest, quickest way to explain the gold standard to somebody? Uh, the gold standard was, hey, our, our money was backed by something, backed by something physical. Uh, world world currencies were were backed by uh, backed by gold for hundreds of years. Right. Like and, and we, we would use something that was easy to to uh, exchange like a paper money um, just for ease of transactions. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, we were we were on the gold standard and then, you know, really how Nelson would explain it is. <laughs> what happens in wars and who are who's backing and financing the wars. World War One really uh, started it destroying the gold standard. But then in 1933, this is the thing that I think is important and people need to realize that this has happened in US history is during the Great Depression, FDR, he he took an emergency action and he required Americans to turn in their gold. Jeez. Now, under the, the there was a penalty of prison. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This was the government, the, the people's choice, just overtly stealing from them, frankly. Yeah, gosh, that doesn't happen today, does it? Um, <laughs> but um, so, and then they would reevaluate, revalue the gold at $35 per ounce. 
Yeah, right. that's right. But before, if you were a citizen, you could take your gold down. I mean, you could take your money and redeem it for gold. That's right. From that point and, on, yeah, you, you couldn't, and only foreign governments and central banks could do that. And there, there's always a great cover story, right? Like, hey, we need this to fight this war. We need this, right, to to save you. There's always that that. Yeah, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but that's what that's how this was sold to the people, right? And then and then um, Nixon finally put the the, the last. Uh, uh, put it to bed, so to speak, and and in 1971 took us off the gold standard. And that point, even governments couldn't redeem dollars for gold. Yeah. Well, the thing that I don't want to miss is you know we had the Bretton Woods Act, and that when people talk about the the U.S. dollar being the world's reserve currency, it's from Bretton Woods, and you know we still we might be. Uh, you know, we might have a stinky currency, but we're the least stinkiest in the world because we are the world's reserve currency. Oil, by OPEC rule, it can only be bought and sold in U.S. dollar. So that's what helping, you know, any stability that we have right now, at least in my mind, is is rooted in that. And then and then Nixon, what he did, you know, here's the, the funny thing is it was all billed as temporary. You know, yeah. it was sold oh, to the yeah. American public that we'd go off this, we close the gold window, but only temporarily. And this is yeah. where if you if you listen to Robert Kiyosaki, he just goes through the roof talking about this this event in 1971 and when he was in Vietnam and he started realizing, wait a second, there's gonna be a fundamental change in the way the world economy works because of this quote unquote temporary event. Absolutely. And so now we have fiat money, which is backed by what? That emotion. <laughs> Nothing, right? <laughs> and uh, so what happened when we got off the gold standard? Well, now we had this little issue called inflation. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you know what's happening, you'll know what to do, right? So that's what, uh, when yeah. we think of what happened in 2020 and how much we increased the money supply and how much we're going to increase the money supply in 2021, and all of these things that are happening, I'm just telling you, we have to do something, right? But we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. All right. So <laughs> the there's something else that happened three years later. Yes. What was that? Yeah. So 1974, ERISA was enacted and that, that birthed the IRA. And, and a few, few years later, birthed the 401k. So the, I call, you know, I think about it, it's the birthing of giving up control of your money uh, to other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the, the, um, it, and what it did is it saved wall street. So if you look at what the government is doing, right, the government's protecting itself, protecting the banks, protecting wall street. Where is it protecting the citizen? Where is it protecting the taxpayer? The yeah. taxpayer really is the host, right? Yeah. The parasite of the government lives off the host, but it's never protecting. It's consuming the host. Yeah, that's right. Like it's, 
uh, it's really theft, but it's always done. So remember how we sell, we sell with emotion and then we have to follow with logic and it's always, Hey, we're, we're here to help you. We're serving you. You, you got to do this to help your, your, your brethren. But th- if we dig in and apply any logic to it, there's really no logic to it. Right. So if you look at there, there's a, there's a table three increase in market values of individuals, financial assets, total, and by components 1950 to 1985, right? Yeah. But let's just look at one area for, for a minute is life insurance um, reserves, right? This is where people held money. And in 1950, 19% of somebody's net worth or whatever was held in, um, in, in, in life insurance. Yeah, so it, it was a percentage of the total increase in financial assets in 1950 was due, 19% was due to life insurance reserves. Right. And in 1985, 2%. So what was that basically saying? People were moving money out of that and tra- transitioning and putting money where? Well, we just, we just gave you the, the clue. It, it, it's moving to uh, Wall Street. And if you look at the, the run-up of Wall Street, it was because we were transition. People were b- basically being incentivized to put money there. It wasn't because people thought, hey, that's such a better value. It was, it was just sold. Uh, that and naturally if people through IRAs and 401ks and the employer you know the the corporate benefit to having a a 401k for your employees well of course if you put more money into it it's going to go up but it wasn't necessarily because people saw value in it it was it was just incentivized to the employers and they got a tax break a pretty substantial tax break to do it right so think again who's controlling that play that's right and it's a government it's a government program as we said on a previous episode all government programs have wound up doing the complete opposite of what they were intended to do and then he talks a little bit about the uh briefly about the ftc report where um and that's the federal trade commission in 1979 that kind of said hey whole life insurance isn't a good place to put your money yeah well right? ralph nader, ralph nader didn't care for the fact that you you can't see all this breakouts, a bundled thing, right? We've talked yeah. about that before. It's bundled. And so what, what, what came of this is universal life. How, how well has universal life worked out? Well, in the last 40 years, it's failed twice. And I would say <laughs> it's failing again because it's not doing what it's projected to do. Yeah, it's just a fancy illustration. It looks good. It's for somebody else, though. It's not for the consumer at the end of the day. Right. Right, exactly. It's well, it it puts all the risk on the consumer. And some of these insurance companies said, Hey, you know what, look at Arisa, all uh, some of these um, citizens, they'll, they'll take all the risk, they're taking all the risk on the do it yourself, defined contribution retirement. So right. why won't they do that with their life insurance? Oh, they will. All we <laughs> got to do is get and give them an incentive and make it look really pretty. Right. Okay. Jim, if we were, if we were starting a life insurance company, would we, uh, if we wanted to be profitable, would we sell uh, as the owners, would we sell universal life or whole life? We would sell universal life because nobody keeps it. We never have to pay a benefit. That's right. So, or we would sell term insurance where less than 1% (laughs) ever pays a benefit because there's only one benefit. That's right. Universal life is term insurance. Invest the difference. 
Invest the difference in what? High interest rates. Oh, we don't have high interest rates. So that failed in, in the 80s. The stock market. Well, there was a couple of corrections in the stock market that blew up all those policies and their projections. Then, it's, uh, then it was a guaranteed UL. Well, guarantee you have death benefit. Then the insurance companies didn't like the way that looked long-term. <laughs> and then now we have index universal life, right? So we try to make it a little bit more complicated with ceilings and floors and some other stuff to make it just a little, just so you don't quite understand it. So you think, well, that's what the guy's telling me to put it in my, my quote CPA or CFP. And so that's what I'll put it in. Yeah. All right, so let's look at what happened when, you know, um, the 1986 Tax Reform Act, and we're not going to talk about the different tax brackets and everything else, but the thing that it did is it um, it changed life insurance, right? That's right. It, it, and we talk about this comes up a lot because we're explaining uh, what? We're explaining we're, the modified endowment contract. What? What? This basically birthed the modified endowment contract, which kind of governs a, a, quite a bit of what we're trying to do. Yeah. So what they did is all of a sudden there before 1988, you could put as much money as you wanted into an insurance contract, have that 100 percent of that money or very close or sometimes a little bit more available in cash value. Right. Yep. And so what were you doing? Well, I was just when you had money. single premium whole life insurance. What were you doing? I was just stuffing money into a tax shelter because because I'd never be taxed again. And there was no there was no cost. Um, there was really no risk transfer. So who was doing that? The wealthy, the wealthy. Why? the Why? You know, and so that's what's funny is, you know, they say it's a <laughs> hey, this is a bad investment. Don't do this. Don't do this. We're going to do it, but you shouldn't do it. That's right. Right. And so then also you had liquidity in the form of policy loans, right? And so then you would put in a million dollars, have a million dollars available, and then you could borrow from the insurance company a million dollars to go put in the motion. And there was no cash drag. There was, it was, it was super efficient, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So then they figured out that hey, we're not really doing all of these things that life insurance was intended for. So they came up with the MEC modified endowment contract in the seven pay test, right? Because yep. they were concerned that too many wealthy Americans were using life insurance to minimize their tax bills rather than, you know, using the death benefit, right? Yep. So, so give, can, can you give us a 10,000 foot explanation of the mech and the seven pay test because you I've, I've had the pleasure of listening to you do this well over 100 plus times but uh, there's so much misinformation out there and we get asked these questions all the time absolutely so the um um the the you know the really the important one is the mech because once a policy would become a mech it's always a mech Okay, so a simple way to look at it is there's a minimum that you can pay and a maximum that you can pay for a certain death benefit amount of insurance. Who sets the minimum death or the minimum contribution or the minimum premium that you could pay? Well, we do. Well, the insurance companies, right? Because they say, 
Um, this is the minimum that we can accept for that death oh, benefit. Yeah, for um, and uh, and and so then it's term insurance. There's gotcha. only one benefit, death benefit. But then the government says that if you exceed this certain amount, so if you make it too efficient, I put in a million dollars and I have nine hundred thousand dollars available. They would say, well, that's a mech. It's not life insurance. There's nothing at risk. And therefore, it acts like a qualified plan with all the taxation, penalties, rules, et cetera. Right. But with the, but there's, a, there's, if you fly right under that mech line, then the policy is as efficient as it can be with, without becoming a mech. So um, when, when I look at this, it's playing by the rules, so to speak, right? Yeah. Now, here's the crazy thing is as dividends may fall, your policy could become a mech. I've seen this with companies that have had dramatic decreases in dividends. And if you put a term rider on these policies hmm. and it's not flexible, well, could that cause a mech? Yeah, what, what about these people that say, oh, well, you can just convert those term riders? Yeah. Now, I always think that's funny. You see a lot of people on the internet that are talking and think they know infinite banking, but they obviously don't because they say you can convert those term riders. And if I convert that term rider, Nick, what's going to happen? It's going to make the policy. It's going to no. make the policy. In fact, the act, one of the actuaries with uh, the insurance company, one of the companies that we use a lot, said that, you have to wait seven years because of the seven pay test after the final PUA payment to make sure that it's not a mech. Yeah. It, right. And technically it is convertible. It's not incorrect to say that it's convertible. It's just that if you do that, you are going to likely going to mech the policy. So just be careful of the, uh, the noise out there on the internet. So, so, you know, the seven pay test talks about the cumulative premium that you can pay, right? Over a seven year period. Yep. The first seven years of the policy, right? Yep. So um, is it's, it, 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 it's about how the policy would be paid up in seven years. And, and, and it really, you know, we, we have to take the material that they're talking about and putting, put it in practical terms is, um, the company won't let you, they, they will notify you that, hey, you're going to mech the policy. But what if it's just like these universal life policies? You have this plan in your head of here's how we're going to fund the policy. And then something changes, right? And if you had a material change, yep, right, then, you know, so it's when the policy opens or there's a material change. So if you had to change the policy because let's say dividends went down and you had the, and you had to, what if you had to increase the term rider so that it wouldn't Mac? Will a company allow you to do that? Maybe. Maybe. What if you're not insurable? What if you're not insurable? Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things where this can really set yourself up for failure. Well, it, you just took the words out of my mouth, Jim. We, we, when we get asked about universal life, it's, hey, we can, we can create a system for you where failure is an option or not an option. But Absolutely. That, what's coming to be clear to me is the people out there pitching 90-10, 
you're you're putting a lot of moving parts in there now um it, it it's build is making you more flexible but i i believe that that's actually going to turn out to not be the case and now you're really starting to introduce failure as an option in your system and and the whole thing misses the complete point of what nelson talked about in his book anyway uh but i won't go down that 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 rabbit hole yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Nick, one of the things that we're that I think is an important message in this chapter as we wrap this up and move on to chapter uh, seven is that um, the wealthy never lost faith in putting their money in 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 uh, whole life insurance, but they told the middle class and the common person not to do it. Yep. Now, it's because. It's just like with real estate today. Hey, don't tell everybody that if I buy real estate, I can depreciate the real estate while it's appreciating in cash and uh, in, in value and it's cash flowing. Don't tell everybody that. I don't want them to know that. Yeah. So you asked me a question when we when we met seven years ago, whenever that was, uh, we were talking about people that make over $100,000. Okay. And I'll just use that as a, as a dividing line, but you said, Hey, is that common or uncommon money? And I didn't know what the heck you were talking about at the time. My brain wasn't engaged in thinking like we think now, but uh, the answer to the question is that's an, that's an uncommon amount of money. And, and then you asked me, you said, well, do you want to do, you, you want to do common or uncommon things? You know, if you're making an uncommon amount of money, why would you do common things with your money? And, and the common way is to go uh, find a good money babysitter and, and do whatever they tell you and hand all your money over to them. But if we want to be uncommon, if you're making an uncommon amount of money, you need to do the uncommon. And that's what the wealthy are doing. So lo looking into this and, and doing that, uh, looking at these policies, building out your banking system, um, that's where the freedom is. That's the uncommon, right? The road less traveled. The narrow door, you know, going and finding that is the key to freedom. And uh, we always say money buys choices and choices buys freedom and um, helping helping our clients use this, understanding the history, where we came from, so that they can they can create passive income that meets or exceeds their ideal standard of living. That's that's where we're going. That's who we're talking to. And if if that's what you want to um, to build for yourself, then uh, we're here here to help you. Absolutely. Okay. So Nick, I think that puts uh, chapter six to bed. Um, any famous last words or final thoughts before we move on to chapter seven next episode? No, I think we've covered it. We, we, uh, again, um, if you want to discuss this more in depth, uh, if you want to discuss your system, uh, and how you want to build it out, go to createtailwind.com, uh, click on the contact us button. We'd also appreciate if you would, uh, go and, and rate this podcast. And, and uh, I think that five stars is the, the uh, highest rating. And it's frankly, the only appropriate rating uh, for the, for the uh, content and value that we're delivering you. Absolutely. Um, that would be great. If you rate us five stars, we would appreciate it. You know, until next time, this is, you know, we're laying the groundwork with this series of how and why infinite banking, why assets, not instruments, and 
hopefully everybody's enjoying this series and, and learning something. I would also encourage you to read the book after you've listened to the series or while you're listening to the series or read it again, if you've already read it. Um, and, uh, Nick, until next time, thank you very much for joining me. Let's, uh, let's wrap this up. And the way that we always wrap it up is you have to break away. Think about the government, the banks and wall street controlling your life and your money. If you don't break away from that, I promise you it's not good on the other side, right? There's only one thing that happens to the herd. So let's break away. Thank you. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.